We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. What's up, everyone? I'm Laura Sextro, CEO of The Unity Project and your podcast host. On today's episode, I talked to Dr. Peter McCullough, who, as many of you know, is an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and an outspoken leader in the medical response to COVID-19. Also joining us on the show is John Leake. He is a best-selling author, historian, and Dr. McCullough's co-author of the new book, Courage to Face COVID. In addition to digging into their new book, you'll hear Dr. McCullough discuss how medical professionals have lost their ability to ask questions and think critically, the ramifications of vaccinating children with a never-before-used genetic-changing vaccine, and understanding myocarditis and pericarditis and how often he is seeing this in pediatric patients. I hope you learn as much as I did in today's episode. Okay, I'm very excited today to be joined by Dr. Peter McCullough and John Leake. For those of you who don't know them, Dr. Peter McCullough is an internist, cardiologist, and epidemiologist who has been a leader in the medical response to COVID-19. He's the chief medical advisor at Truth for Health Foundation and a strategic advisory council member here at the Unity Project. And John Leake is a best-selling author whose investigative writings have been inspiration for numerous TV documents excuse me, documentaries, and co-author of The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex with Dr. Peter McCullough. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining us today. I'm really, really excited about the book that you guys have just uh, published, and I can't personally wait to read it. Um, I'm sure that a lot of the people that, that will be seeing this podcast will also be excited to get access to it. So why don't we talk about, first of all, um, let me back up and say, why don't we have you guys individually introduce yourself and then let's talk about the book and how it came to fruition. So Peter, we'll, well start I'm with Dr. you. Dr. Peter McCullough and thanks so much for having us on the program, uh, Laura. It, it, briefly, I'm in clinical practice here in Dallas. So I'm busy, very busy seeing patients. I just got home from the hospital uh, just now. And uh, so I've been involved from the very beginning on trying to devise methods of treating patients with COVID-19, giving a fair balance review on COVID-19 you know, immunization therapy, you know, approaches, and then now dealing with the, with the injury syndromes. But I'll let John really tell the story about how we came together to write this book. Great. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, I um, am a true crime author. My goodness. Um, I'm a true crime author. Um, and uh, I, but I have a real interest in medical history. And um my I kind of come from a medical family. My great great grandfather was a surgeon in the Civil War. After the war, he became the sort of the medical officer of, of Dallas um, back in the late 19th century. And so I've had this lifelong interest in um, medical history. Um, my first two true crime books um, had a strong forensic medical um, components. 
I lived in Vienna, Austria for many years and even did some translation work for a pathologist at the Vienna Institute of Forensic Medicine, which was kind of a legendary institute in the development of forensic medicine. So I, I kind of had this interpretive framework as a true crime author um, in some of the medical literature, how, how to read medical literature. When um, SARS-CoV-2 arrived in the United States um, and started to spread in March, I began to perceive that the official policy response had some, what seemed to me to be elements of fraud. Mm -hmm. And then as I began to think more about the business of early treatment, it was represented as this unassailable virus and there's just absolutely nothing medicine could do to treat it. I began to think that doesn't sound plausible. I mean, how could they even know that? It's a novel yeah. thing. Um, so I began to think I, I would like to investigate this and then I began to think I, I would like to find a true medical authority, a, 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 a true, true um, eminence in, in medicine uh, to help me understand this and, and to um, join me in this investigative effort. And so I found Dr. McCullough, who happened to live two miles away from my home. It was a very happy coincidence. And we got to work about, I'd, well, looking at the calendar exactly a year ago. I think I contacted him on, on um, May the 16th of last year. That's fascinating. So you guys started your work a year ago and a lot has transpired in the last year. I would imagine in terms of understanding the virus, understanding what's happening with regard to the vaccines and the dangers. So I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, Laura, I can tell you so much of the book is uh, about the journey uh, that Unity Health has been involved with, with uh, many of the key doctors and others in the, in the battle to treat COVID-19. Uh, and then in a sense, in a separate battle against the biopharmaceutical complex for so this group of stakeholders that seems to be so extensive uh, that in, in, in our view, have always worked to suppress early treatment, suppress really advances in treatment across the board in order to promote the vaccine agenda. It right. seems relatively clear from the very beginning, before anybody knew anything, the one thing that the, the consortium seemed to be absolutely certain of is that there was no treatment. And this kind of absolute negative stance on treatment was, was uh, extraordinary. Uh, but so many of us uh, in the course of our career faced it. What's unique about the book, uh, unlike the others, is that John's the primary uh, writer. And so it's written as a narrative, it's written as a story. And there are stories involving uh, the doctors and their families, as well as stories regarding patients and what happened to them and their loved ones. And I think when people read the book, not only does it read extraordinarily well, but people will say, you know what, I know that happened to me, or I know this relates to me. I think the relatability of the book will be far greater than I think anything out there in the COVID-19 space right now. Well, I can tell you that, oh, sorry, go ahead, John. I really see Dr. McCullough's story as a sort of odyssey. I mean, we see he's, he's, this, he's this cardiologist, in Dallas, yeah. he's worked his whole life to get to this culminating point in his career as an academic and um, a professor of medicine and a clinician. And he's kind of thinking that this is, you know, he's headed for a comfortable retirement. Mm 
And suddenly, you know, he's drawn into this global conflict. Right. And so we, we see his odyssey and it concludes with him standing on the Lincoln Memorial addressing this huge crowd about, you know, maintaining the U.S. Constitution and freedom right. of speech. And so um, I, I, I think that, um, that readers will find it a, a very engaging odyssey. Well, I'm excited to read it. And, you know, some of those points bring up to me questions. You know, I, I recently went to, uh, unfortunately had to go to the hospital to visit a family member who had uh, been put in the emergency room. And when I got there, one of the first things that the people in the emergency room said to me was that they needed to see my vaccine card in order to enter. And I promptly explained that I do not have a vaccine card. And, you know, I said they, they denied me access to going and seeing my family member. And, but I wasn't, it wasn't going to leave it at that point. So what I said to the nurse was, are you aware that even if you've received the vaccine, you can still acquire and transmit the virus? And she immediately said, yes. And I said, so at this point, the, the concept of public health and safety, which seems to me that it should be off the table. So what I'd love to understand from, from really from both of you is why do you think doctors continue to engage in what to me feels very much like a violation of the Hippocratic Oath? Um, are they unaware that there is effective early treatment? Are they unaware of the dangers of uh, remdesivir and some of the, the protocol that has been kind of mainstream? And are they, you know, are they unaware that if you're vaccinated, you can still acquire and transmit the virus? Well, Laura, those are great questions. Uh, I've never seen a single uh, interviewer or media person ask one of those doctors that question. You know, I get posed that question all the time. Well, what are they thinking? Um, but no one will actually ever ask those doctors what they're thinking. We've invited uh, those yeah. doctors. There's a million of them. It's almost all the doctors right. think that way. There's a million of them. Uh, we've invited them to symposiums, roundtables, uh, and they simply will not show up. And no one will ask them the questions. There won't be a single media person that will ever ask them a question. So we, we sit kind of stunned and marveled in, in what looks like a deep trance. It, mm -hmm. It's a trance that started very early uh, with this suppression of early treatment, this idea that the virus was unassailable, that uh, in fact, all the fear that was in a doctor's mind could be uh, in a sense, uh, 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 you know, assuaged by the fact that they were absolved from treatment. They could right. simply stay at home and do WebEx with their normal patients and just ignore their COVID patients altogether. And that was okay. So right. not only was it physically protective to them, it was emotionally protective. The patients getting sick with COVID was outside their circle of empathy. In fact, uh, you know, those doctors weren't even calling those patients or checking up on them. So this just happened over and over and over again, and then enter the vaccines. And right. with the vaccines now, uh, you know, the very first place the U.S. program rolled out the vaccines well, wasn't in the nursing homes where we had outbreaks. It wasn't with our senior citizens who far and away uh, took the biggest casualties with the program. We had a lot of senior citizens still at risk. It wasn't with nursing home workers even, the ones that actually truly transmitted it to the patients. Instead, it was with the doctors. And it was doctors in the hospital. That was the very first target. It didn't even target the most needy population in America. They targeted the doctors. 
and the doctors took the vaccines with no questions, with no critical thinking, and they took the vaccines. And once they took the vaccines, then those doctors, in a sense, were captured. They were captured psychologically. They later on learned that they took risks. Uh, and when somebody takes a risk and they make it, many times they want to encourage the next person to say, take the same risk if it's for community benefit. This is common uh, in, in, in um, wilderness adventure exercises. Right. Maybe, once somebody's taking the risk. And so what happened over time is doctors became completely and totally and intentionally willfully blind to vaccine injuries, willfully blind, the most obvious vaccine injuries. I saw my entire day today was seeing vaccine injured patients. I saw a woman who had taken the vaccines, uh, developed uh, a syndrome, a, a neurologic and, and rheumatologic syndrome. She had seen 17 different doctors, 17 wow. doctors. And she said every single doctor said that they did not know what she had. They absolutely positively did not know what she had, but they were sure whatever she had was not due to the vaccine. Of course, of course, because if they um, admitted it, then they'll, they, you know, they're, they're having to go down a path of acknowledging that these vaccines come with a tremendous amount of risk and not a lot of benefit. Uh, it, it never ceases to amaze me that in society, people have such an over, overly dramatic reaction to COVID-19. I think no doubt there are um, risks for certain certain demographics within our society. I think if you're over um, a certain age or if you have comorbidities, I think I, we, we've clearly established that there are some risks for the, that, that subset of society, right? Um, but if you're a relatively healthy person under, let's say age, probably, I mean, you guys know better than, than I do about this, but under the age of 65 and, um, you have no comorbidities, your likelihood of having an issue with, with COVID-19 is extremely rare. So it seems to me, it never ceases to amaze me that people's reaction to COVID-19 um, is such that they would be able, they would be willing to go out and put themselves in, in potential harm's way um, when there's no risk to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, so um, uh, it's funny that Dr. McCullough had a vaccine injury day. Um, I, I just got a call about an hour before this podcast. I, for a while, I lived on the island of Maui. And um, I remember I had a friend on Maui and, and where I would always bump into him was at the Whole Foods on Maui. He was a real health nut. It, the Whole Foods has a marvelous salad bar. And that's where I would always bump into him. And a uh, super fit guy went surfing all day out in the sunshine, surfing, uh, stand up, paddling, love the ocean. Exactly my age, born in the same year I was. And um, great guy, fun guys and super fit guy. And um, I just got the word today that um, he received the vaccinations and then he recently went and got the booster. And then a couple of weeks ago, he was out kayaking with friends. Um, he had a good friend of his behind him. They were doing this downwind kayaking thing out in the ocean and he just slumped over and died. Just had a heart attack. Oh my gosh. Well, um, sadly, it's, it's sadly, that's not an uncommon story. And you know, I think people oftentimes like to relate this to, um, you know, uh, tuberculosis or hepatitis or other communicable diseases 
that may have had worse outcomes for patients. And I, it doesn't seem to me like the data supports that. COVID-19, based on the data that I have seen, um, seems to be a, again, a relatively, um, I, dare I say, innocuous um, disease for uh, people that are, do not fall into a risk category. No, it, you- I agree with you. You know, the statistics are true, but uh, you know, everybody in their circles knows one or two young people who have died of the respiratory illness. And those anecdotes are just as powerful as the vaccine death that John shared with you. These anecdotes are, uh, are powerful. But the trance, uh, the mental state that people are in are stunning. I learned yesterday. I mean, these just keep come pouring in now. Someone, a uh, very close relative of mine in my circles who you know, he, he knows who I am and he knows what I do. Uh, he had uh, under no duress at all, no mandates, uh, nothing to worry about. He had actually gotten up to four injections of messenger wow. RNA vaccination, including one just four weeks before he went on a European trip. So he goes on a European trip with his wife and his uh, mother-in-law and he's on it for a few days and he comes down with COVID as he's on a boat going down a, a river in Germany. And uh, he's probably taken off the boat to a COVID hotel. Uh, and then from there he worsens and then he's hospitalized in a German hospital for COVID-19 respiratory condition. And you know the, the, uh, the, the lack of critical thinking on the four injections is, is one part of it without really any discussion. Again, he knows who I am, he knows that you know, I've testified in the U.S. Senate and, uh, uh, you know, I've been studying this for two years. And then the lack of critical thinking of, you know, not bringing any type of COVID kit, any types of supplies, uh, nutraceuticals, supplements, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, prednisone, you know, there was no kind of treatment kit or, you know, using thorough nasal washes, nothing was, was, was really done. And so I think he had some type of nasal wash and and uh, when he got to the COVID hotel, they actually took everything away from him, everything. So if he would have had any treatment, that would have been stripped away. And then in a sense, they allowed him to intentionally worsen before he went into the hospital. And then he received very late treatment. And of interest, he received uh, the Pfizer drug Paxlovid, which in the United States is only approved for outpatient use. It's not even approved for inpatient use. He received that and he received some uh, low molecular heparin and just this whole oddity. So his, you know, his entire uh, European trip is busted. His family goes home early. Now he's back home and he's coughing and he's quadruple vaxxed. And you know, then this morning uh, a video comes up and it's Anderson Cooper and Bill Gates. And uh, they're talking to each other and say, well, listen, you know, you took three to four shots and I took three to four shots. We just had the respiratory illness, how many more shots do we think we should get? And, you know, Gates, assuming the role of, of master physician, uh, advises continued injections, uh, you know, every three to six months indefinitely. Right, uh, of course. The, the, the trance, uh, the yeah. trance, I mean, I, I, the question is, do these people understand how ridiculous they really look to those on the outside? Well, but I think you brought up a really interesting point and maybe we can talk, we can dive down into this a little bit. So you said that everyone 
um, knows a young person or most people can, can cite someone that passed away of the COVID-19 um, respiratory disease, right? What I find to be interesting is people oftentimes will say to me, I know someone that passed away. So it's really important that you wear a mask or I know someone that's, that's, that's passed away. So it's really important that you get the vaccine. And I've kind of changed my narrative now and said, well, I don't know that you know someone that's passed away. I actually firmly believe that you know someone that's been murdered by the, um, and I will say institution and the narrative that they have and the mission that they're, that they're pushing by denying effective early access to effective treatment. And so, um, it, it, to me that that's the whole, um, the whole smoke and mirrors that the, that's been perpetrated on the American people. And just like you were saying, these people seem to be in a trance. I think that, that it's, that it's allowed to, to be propagated because early on we had to create this, um, smoke and mirrors that so many people were dying of COVID-19 and that there was no uh, way to save them because they were being denied access to effective early treatment that, that no one really knew about. Does that make sense? So I, well, I just think- That's what ahead, our book ahead. is about. Yeah. That, that's, that's actually what our book is about. I mean, our, our book, the genres, ours, it's narrative nonfiction, true crime. And it's about the suppression of, of early treatment. So Dr. McCall and his colleagues following the Hippocratic Oath, following longstanding habits of being doctors and being medical researchers. Well, we got to, it's a new thing. It's upon us. We got to figure out a way to treat it. And they discovered there are treatment modalities, but then no sooner are they making these discoveries and sharing these discoveries with each other than they're encountering this resistance. No, categorical there is no treatment. This, you know, it doesn't work. It's not effective. So it, it, that is the theme of our story. That's the overarching theme. And, and I, I, you know, from the outset of the book, I, I raised the question, um, and, and the reader can form his own judgment about this, this question that I present is impeding or hindering or, or, um, in some way discouraging a sick man from receiving medications that, that could help. It's not guaranteed that it's going to help, but you know, nothing's, nothing's certain in life, but it could help. Is that different? If you imagine a scenario in which a guy falls overboard on a, on a ship at sea in high seas and cold water, is withholding medicine from a sick man, medicines that could help, is that any different from withholding a, a life buoy to someone who's fallen overboard. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to analyze this in terms of logic and, and law. Right. Um, well, I don't think there is. I, I think it, in my mind, at least, it seems like a clear violation of the Hippocratic Oath. And when you referenced the point about, you know, are, are these, these treatments, are they effective maybe compared to some of the other treatments that are out there? And I think without, uh, it goes without say, if you look at some of the data that if you look at like remdesivir as an example that that's currently being used, um, you know, it, I think what, what was it, Peter, that they had like an, an 80% um, negative outcome for, for patients that were put on remdesivir. 
But that if you contrast that against the early effective treatments of hydroxychloroquine, as well as uh, ivermectin and maybe fluvoxamine and some of the others, um, they had a significantly higher positive outcome than what, what is the current narrative and, and treatment protocol um, in, in mainstream hospitals right now. Well, sure. I, you know, we, we focus on the suppression of outpatient treatment because of the two you know, bad outcomes of interest, hospitalization and death. But if we look within the hospitals and treatment within the hospitals, we're astonished to, to understand that still 25% of Americans hospitalized receive remdesivir late. That's a polymerase inhibitor. Uh, that's in violation of the World Health Organization guidance. The World Health Organization says do not use remdesivir late because it results in more deaths, kidney damage, kidney failure, and liver damage. Right. Uh, the, the European Society of Critical Care says do not use remdesivir. So I think people should be shocked when they learn that that still is, is going on. And, and there's a payment system that gives a bonus uh, to hospitals that actually use remdesivir right. against World Health Organization guidance. Uh, they would also, uh, I think, be shocked that we're two years into this and there are no specialized unique protocols. There's no Mayo Clinic protocol or Harvard protocol. Uh, there's no uh, proclaimed center of excellence in the United States. What's the top COVID center in the United States? Uh, you know, many centers complain, uh, claim to be top cardiovascular, top cancer centers. We have US News and World Report. They put rankings out for everything, right. everything. No US News and World Report for the best COVID treatment. I mean, right. again, this is the level of oblivion to the treatment of COVID-19 knows no limits. It goes from uh, every single TV station in America, every right. single mainstream media station, every single radio station, just about. You, you would think that some local station somewhere would want a weekly update about how their hospital is doing. Is their hospital doing better? You would think that local city civic leaders and state leaders would want to know the COVID-19 mortality statistics per hospital. No reporting, none. Well, I think that there's no reporting because they're probably not classifying these deaths properly. I think as we've seen, um, as, as you know, chronically, excuse me, historically over the last two years, as we've seen the data um, that's come out, we've seen a continued reclassification of the true COVID deaths, right? They were saying, I think at one point that uh, the CDC came out and said that you can you can say that about 20% of deaths were actually mis misclassified. And I think then I heard up to 40% to of those deaths were misclassified. We also happen to know that the PCR tests are now uh, were, are incorrect. There are, there are a tremendous amount of false positives. So I think part of the reason, in my opinion, that, that we're not seeing a reporting, even though it was so desperately needed is because the data itself is so skewed and flawed that uh, we don't necessarily know what to trust. And what's interesting to me is that I understand um, there that uh, Gilead is new is excuse me is now trying to get um, approval for use in as down as low as I think six months for remdesivir. Have you yeah, heard well, that? Let me just clarify. So remdesivir uh, clearly is dangerous when given late. There has been a small pediatric trial of desperate uh, childhood cases on the mechanical ventilator or advanced circulatory support. 
And they just showed that they can give the kids remdesivir. It didn't really show remdesivir did anything. And so, you know, that EUA was granted there. That could influence a small number of, of, of children uh, very late in the hospitalization. The one interesting area where remdesivir did look like it was beneficial is in a randomized trial published by Gottlieb and colleagues given early. So actually, again, early treatment, if one could get an outpatient infusion for uh, two to three days, uh, given early, it, it was associated with the re reduction in hospitalization. And so, you know, it, it, like everything else, uh, it takes careful interpretation of the science. And we're not seeing that from our leaders. And, and really, Lord, it didn't matter to me how they classify the deaths. It's the fact that no one seems to be interested in excellence. There no, seems to be no that. interest in excellence on COVID-19. Everywhere from the urgent care centers to the ERs to the mm -hmm. hospitals, no one seems to want to be excellent in this area. Yeah, you know, um, in California, we have a new bill. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's uh, AB 2098. And that bill is shocking and scary. Um, and I think it, it helps to contribute to what you were just saying in terms of lack of excellence, lack of uh, doctors really trying to dig down and understand what's happening with COVID. Uh, but the bill basically states that any doctor that um, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially goes against the COVID uh, protocols and narrative that, that everyone's operating under right now and start to actually practice medicine based on the Hippocratic Oath, um, that they their license could be subject to medical review board. So what's happening in California is they're actually creating mechanisms for the government to disable doctors and really target doctors for practicing medicine, um, which to me compounds the already existing problem that we're having with regard to COVID and the medical, you know, the medical uh, medical industry. It's it's shocking. So, John, what's your reaction as a non-physician to that that type of proposed legislation? Well, it, it seems to me that it's part of this broader um, ambition that we've we've seen and that we outline in, in our book, a centralization, standard centralization of, of medical care imposed from federal and, and state health agencies. And we believe um, the culmination of our research has drawn, has led us to draw the, the conclusion that what's going on here is that um, it, it is a means of centralized, broader and deeper centralized control of society by medical means. So, you know, you have different ways of controlling people, their movements, their, their, their participation and activities, their habits of consumption. Um, you know, traditionally, we thought of um, the primary means of controlling humanity, uh, you know, through use of force, it's military force or police force, um, intelli an intelligence apparatus, a, a, an apparatus of informants with, with the police power behind it. But what we think is happening is that centralized medical mandate is a a, a very clever and effective and efficient mechanism for, for controlling society. And, um, and we saw with this WHO proposal that's going to be submitted to a 
vote in Geneva here in a couple of weeks, this centralization that cuts across all national frontiers and jurisdictions, like all of humanity, the, the entire earth. You know, if you, if you think of the sort of paradigm of a infectious disease pandemic that crosses all national frontiers, spreads all over the earth. So the, the response to that is, is a centralized control command and authority that, that can regulate all of humanity control all of humanity identically uh, across all national boundaries. So it, I, I, I think it's very useful. I've said this before, you know, traditionally empire building has been done with military commanders and armies. You know, you think of the Roman Imperium that spread all across Europe and the Mediterranean, you know, all the way to Judea and North Africa. And it's the great Roman legions and their, their roads. They could move soldiers around very rapidly. They had this very disciplined fighting force. And I think the recognition is armies, occupational soldiers, weapons, all of it. It has nothing of the efficiency that, of, of these pandemic responses. So I think that's what's happening. Why California has become such a, um, has, has developed such a totalitarian spirit um, is, is a great mystery to me. I mean, I, I grew up I, surfing and dirt bike riding and, and you know, Gidget and, you know, it was a place of freedom and individual expression and music and youth. And there's a strange, um, uh, potent, imposition of conformity in California right now. This is very, very puzzling. Um, but anyway, that's a topic for an, another discussion. Um, yeah. But it's, in, but it's interesting though, because they say, you know, as California goes, so does the rest of the country. And I know Gavin Newsom is, is very famous for saying that he believes what's happening in California is the blueprint for that should be at least the blueprint for the rest of the country. Yeah. I mean, you'll pardon quite me. scary. You'll pardon me for being a little bit of a smart aleck, but I mean, you know, it was fun when it was, I wish they could all be California girls or something, but I mean, now it's just like pathological. I mean, California, you know, it, it used to be a sort of dreamy place of youth and freedom. And now it's this kind of frightening, um, uh, you know. It's a you know, dystopian it's it's very strange and, and Newsom kind of I mean I hope, hope I can say this about a public figure I mean he, he kind of reminds me in a strange way of um that film with um, that marvelous British actor I can't even remember his name American Psycho <laughs> I mean he looks like he's just, just kind of this this anyway that 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 wasn't a very scholarly thing to say but the point is this there is something openly pathological ab yes. about a lot of this. I mean, if you sure. if you watch closely, our public figures, these these people of enor enormous power and influence that are part of these networks that are very long established now, the way they talk, the way they present, there, there's this sort of dictatorial, almost narcissism mm -hmm. that you find. It, expressed in these people that I just find downright un uncanny and, and, and strange. Um, I totally agree. Um, I, I think your your 
characterization of it is spot on when you say there's something psychopathic and it, it leads actually into the next point that I wanted to talk about, which is to me, it is very psychopathic to say that, that you have a mission to have all, every child in the state of California vaccinated with a vaccine that's experimental. Uh, there's not any clinical research um, data on what, what happens in the pediatric population, but more importantly, why are we vaccinating them? They, they are not vectors of transmission. They, if you are a healthy child under the age of 18, there's statistically zero risk for them. So why is there such a push to have every child in the state of California vaccinated? It's a fascinating question, in my opinion, uh, one that people struggle to answer. I've had the gamut of, well, it's to, to help uh, protect the older population, which, you know, of course, my, my comment in that scenario would be, again, I have to go back to the fact that they're not vectors of transmission. But also, since when do we in this country use children as a first line of defense? Uh, but then the, the people just, you know, the other common answer that I get is, well, I'm just following the rules. It's just, it's following the rules. Yeah, that's a great segue into this uh, uh, theory, really proposed construct that's mature by Professor Matthias Desmet from the University of Ghent in Belgium and uh, honored to be on uh, at least two programs with him. Uh, young uh, uh, clinical psychologist, professor of psychology. Uh, it's almost like going back to graduate school, listening to him, and he's so mm -hmm. uh, careful and dispassionate. He uh, believes, and, and he's a little bit upset at himself for identifying late, uh, but he does have a book out called the, the Psychology of Totalitarianism now, where he believes we're in mass formation worldwide, worldwide, which is really an amazing phenomenon. And uh, what mass formation is, it's a form of groupthink where, uh, where the human mind gets synchronized with another human mind and, and then so on and so on in a very contagious way. And so the mm -hmm. contagion of mass formation in many ways is more contagious than SARS-CoV-2. And it has four critical elements. The first is that, uh, that we had to have a period of uh, isolation. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's what we had. The second one is we had to have things taken away from us we used to enjoy. And, and everyone recognizes that from you know, everything they do in their, their typical lives. Number three, we have to have constant free-floating anxiety, another emergency state, another wave of news regarding another variant or concern, constant anxiety. And then the last uh, criteria is we must have solutions that come down from a, uh, you know, an entity of authority, typically a government agency or, or the state. And uh, when all four have been fulfilled, that's good enough for the uh, you know the formation to begin to congeal, and that's exactly uh, what's happened. It happened in mass religious cult suicides, where in the end the solution comes from the leader, and everyone upon his command commits suicide. Uh, it happened in Nazi Germany, where uh, you know in the end it was the commands of the supreme leadership for uh, mass genocide and the Holocaust and and the waves of uh, imperialism that, that really, you know, obviously was the demise of uh, the Nazi empire. Um, but, but the contagion can spread without Twitter. Uh, it obviously happened in Nazi Germany without Twitter, without the internet, uh, without mass communications. Uh, and it, it's a human um, property. It can happen in the human mind. And, and what Desmond says is how you know it's true 
that people are in the formation that they it's called mass formation psychosis right. is when you see absurdity Laura, absurdity so anything you can think of that's absurd uh, right. i.e how about vaccinating children with an experimental vaccine that's a genetic code for the wuhan spike protein developed in a bioterrorism level four lab in Wuhan, China with no long-term right. outcomes and the children don't need that. And it could only take a healthy child to make them sick. You know, that's absurd. I mean, that's that, absolutely that, absurd. That's an application. So those who are proposing it um, must be in the formation. There's tons of examples with masking, people wearing masks and oh. swimming in swimming pools. And, uh, uh, and I can tell when someone's in the formation, you know, I had several patients today that were in the formation. And, uh, and then because when, when we start to have a discussion, uh, the eyes grow blank. Uh, they, they seem almost disconnected from reality uh, when we're discussing something. Uh, so, you know, I think the mass formation psychosis is very tractable. You know, I spend a lot of time on my podcast, The McCullough Report, internationally. So I spent some more time in uh, Asia last night with a wonderful doctor, a, psych a psychiatrist. And... Uh, he said basically that th this formation is clear in his country. The other thing I learned that was very interesting from him, that the same sets of Eastern uh, uh, traditional medicine, uh, the various types of Asian herbs and things that they're using now to help people get through the respiratory illness, he says largely are the same ones they used to get through the Spanish flu. Oh, and interesting. I thought, I thought that was so interesting because he said, listen, you know, we don't have a cure for this. Most of this is just to get get people through the anxiety of being so right. short of breath and being so sick, keeping the airways as maximally dilated as possible. Then they use a combination of ingestible herbs and poultices and things of this nature. Uh, but it was so interesting to talk to him. And, you know, one thing I'll say to put a capstone on this, uh, what's happening now is almost a sea change from conventional allopathic Western medicine mm -hmm. back to holopath, uh, you know, holistic, naturopathic, integrative medicine. It's very interesting. I, I you know, well, let me just, I, I heard one funny joke that I thought was somewhat um, apropos when, when we're talking about the absurdity of all this. I, I heard this joke that said, you know, if I've taken my dog and getting him, gotten him rabies shots three times in one year and he continues to get rabies, I'm going to start asking some questions. Um, and I thought that was pretty funny and, and somewhat appropriate for what's happening with, with COVID and all these vaccines and the absurdity behind that. But uh, to your point regarding homeopathic, um, the pathway, probably a more homeopathic pathway, I should say, for um, treating COVID, I heard, um, I think your podcast, uh, Peter, and then I know that I've heard uh, Dr. Robert Malone also talking about this, about the importance of, of vitamins and, and really... Um, how impactful they can be almost maybe more so as it relates to COVID than maybe even some other, um, you know, human pathologies that we've seen in the past and in particular vitamin D, um, which was fascinating there's to no, me. There's no doubt about it. I mean, there's, uh, uh, the one thing that's very daunting about the naturopathic world is if for each micronutrient or vitamin, there really is a wealth of literature. Sometimes it's just overwhelming. And with vitamin D now and SARS-CoV-2, it is absolutely overwhelming that there's an inverse relationship. That is the highest vitamin D intake, uh, serological levels of vitamin D, the lesser the COVID, the lesser the acquisition of the infection, the lesser the severity of the infection. And it's ringing true over and over again. So it falls into the category of if it's so um, 
internally valid and externally consistent. And there's no harm in fortifying the food supply or fortifying the population with vitamin D. Why wouldn't government agencies take that step? And when sure. it boils down to why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they just put out a public service ad? Why wouldn't they just hand out some, some little you know, capsules of vitamin D? You know, why wouldn't they do that? Something so simple as that. Do, do we need a large 40,000 patient definitive random? We're not saying it's a therapy. It just right. seems to be uh, you know, good to have it baseline as protection. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would add to that, that this is, this is something that, you know, as we were doing our research and, and he was seeing in his clinical practice, talking with his colleagues, you know, and again and again, we, we saw that any old fashioned, you know, sensible counsel that, that could help people, that there was no risk in it. I mean, I, I, one of the characters in our story is a local doctor here in Dallas named Yvette Lozano, Dr. Yvette Lozano. And she had a practice, she held out her shingle and said, I'll treat anybody that comes. Uh, she started off, she saw President Trump mentioned Professor Didier Raoul in, in Marseille, his, his um, hydroxychloroquine azithromycin uh, protocol. And then she saw um, Dr. Zelenko in New York proposed adding zinc to the cocktail. And so she said, I'll, I'll treat anybody that comes to my clinic. So all of these people in Texas, a lot of them were of the laboring class, you know, working people, essential workers, I guess we call them. And a lot of them were of Hispanic ancestry and they didn't really have anywhere to go. The word gets out in church groups and just sort of starts mm-hmm. spreading around the community that if you go to Yvette's clinic, she'll treat you. So it's really a, a wonderful, you know, story of um, just someone kind of rolling up their sleeves and practicing medicine in the old school, just helping people. I mean, right there, stethoscope to, you know, to, to the back, listening to the lungs, getting coughed on. I mean, she, a really a brave, a brave lady. You know, um, she made some seminal observations. And I, I love this story, this chapter, because it's all about uh, the, the, you know, the uh, empirical nature, uh, the serendipitous nature of scientific discovery. So here we have a brand new virus and uh, there's an independent doctor working, you know, she's a single mom working with her daughter, trying to keep her, her small business alive and she's deluged with patients. But she makes the observation that those who have a high blood sugar uh, and are eating sugary foods do worse with COVID-19 consistently over and over again. She also makes the observation that hydroxychloroquine actually reduces blood sugar. It has that salutary effect. And then, uh, and I reviewed this with her and I have to tell you, Ron, the literature exploded with paper after paper showing high glucose related to worsens COVID-19's outcome as well as uh, a hemoglobin A1C. And to this day, we recommend away from sugary and starchy foods, higher protein. Uh, and, uh, you know, we utilize the principles that she observed. The other, the other interesting thing she did, Laura, is she actually observed that as long as somebody was in febrile, that if they exercised, the oxygen saturation would go up. And that was counterintuitive. When people are having low oxygen levels, they're having trouble breathing, the last thing you think you'd do would be to exercise them. But mm-hmm. she had this idea of improving pulmonary blood flow in the setting of microthrombosis, which is what is occurring. And she actually bought an arm, legal, uh, or, 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 
exercise machine, uh, an ergometer, and she actually had people in her office on oxygen exercising to give really a, a, a temporary or more sustained boost in oxygen saturation. You know, these types of innovations, uh, like with any crisis, the answer doesn't come from the ivory tower. The ivory tower was on WebEx. Uh, they weren't trying to help a single soul. The innovation came from some of the smallest creative and most dedicated people. So you mean that um, eating healthy and getting exercise is just this, what the doctor ordered? <laughs> yeah, this is, this is what I was going to say. I mean, it's not as though high blood sugar is, is some mysterious, um, you know, detrimental thing. I mean, we've known for people that are borderline diabetic or diabetic, they have, they have a host of metabolic problems. I mean, so I, I never, I don't know about either of you, but in the whole two years that this mess has been going on, I, I never heard the NIH or the FDA or any, or the CDC or anybody just say something like, I mean, how could you put it in a, in a palatable way, but get the message across? Um, we have noticed that severe SARS, um, excuse me, severe COVID-19 correlates with being overweight and having a high blood sugar. So, you know, we would propose that people try and get their weight under control and, and monitor their blood sugar, keep it under a hundred. I, I never once, uh, Dr. Did you ever did you ever hear any kind of advice? Oh, we never. In fact, at the beginning, we heard just the opposite. I'll never forget a, a reel on CNN where two CNN correspondents were castigating this poor gentleman who was outside during the lockdown trying to jog on the Embarcadero in San Francisco. And, you know, they just absolutely went after this guy uh, like he was some, you know, committing some crime. He was just trying to get some exercise and stay in shape. He was far away from everyone right. else. Um, but I'll never forget uh, the fear. And when we go back and look at these reels, CNN correspondents that were trying to sterilize pizza boxes and people were in terror. They were actually trying to sterilize their grocery bags in the garage before they came in. Uh, newsreels where grim men were spraying football stadium seats or are spraying sidewalks. Uh, how about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, Super Bowl in the stadium where they let in a, a meager 100 vaccinated healthcare workers? Right. And I was on TV. I said they should have filled the stadium with COVID recovered patients. They right. suffered through the virus. They're negligible risk to anybody else. Fill the stadium, give everybody a beer and hot dog and celebrate <laughs> that we went through the illness. The one point I want to make in this whole narrative, this dark narrative, is there's no joy in the dark narrative. There's none. And so as we go across the country, John's gone to, to many of these now, these freedom rallies. We'll get together and there'll be, you know, anywhere from 500 to 5,000 people show up. They're interested in freedom. They understand something is going on. They want to interpret the data. Uh, one of the comments I'll make is, you know, there's no vaccine celebration going on at the other side of town. There's no Pfizer rally right. or there's no Moderna gala event. No one is celebrating masks. No one is. No one is. Uh, there is no joy on the other side of totalitarianism. Of course not, of course not. Uh, I would, if we could just switch gears for a little bit, I'd love to dig down into some of the impacts that this has on the pediatric population because 
you know, you say there's no joy. Uh, there's no joy in a parent having to tell their child that they have to wear a mask to go to school. And I think that there is no joy. And I think we've seen the, um, the unfortunate consequences of lockdowns and what they've done to the pediatric community in the last two years, the epidemic level of mental illness and suicide rates in these, these young, young children. And now, uh, you know, bills like in California, SB 871, which has been put on hold, but I, you know, I believe that there's a possibility that they'll try to resurrect this bill. Um, it's a bill that states that children in, in the state of California cannot attend school unless they are vaccinated. Also, it looks like uh, Louisiana is, is the first state that is looking to pursue uh, making sure that children are vaccinated in order to attend school. So all of these things, what I'd love to do is talk about the negative, specifically the health, negative health implications of vaccinating a healthy child. Um, and I'd like to, to start, I think probably a good starting point would be to understand myocarditis and pericarditis. Maybe you could tell us, uh, Peter, what those two are. And then prior to the COVID-19 vaccine, in particular in the pediatric population, how often did you see those? I think every parent should know, Laura, that the injections are classified as gene transfer technologies. First time we're injecting genetic code inside human bodies on a mass scale. That in alone and by itself should be disturbing. The children have never received foreign genetic code. Now the genetic code appears from what we can tell to be long lasting, it's not broken down quickly, it's stuck in lymph nodes. It codes for a dangerous protein called the spike protein. And this was all devised in a biosecurity lab in Wuhan, China. And it was very intentional. And I think every parent should be alarmed of having foreign adenoviral or messenger RNA. It's largely now gonna be messenger RNA now in the children. Uh, I think every parent should be disturbed at this, that why should their healthy child take foreign genetic material? I can tell you injection after injection cannot make a child healthier. It's impossible. The child cannot improve their health. The health can only, only go down and the FDA agrees. The FDA has official warnings that the genetic code, once it's installed into the human heart, that the spike protein that's produced damages heart muscle cells and damages them substantially. This is not a minor damage. And we can't tell which children it's gonna to happen to. And the signs and symptoms are very subtle. A papers by Jenna Schauer and colleagues have shown that sometimes children just have a fever. They don't even have any chest pain right. or symptoms. And so there could be a vast number of children having heart damage right before us and we're not gonna know it. Those who come to clinical attention, the, the MRIs are 100% positive. It's signs and symptoms of heart failure, significant heart damage by cardiac troponin, echocardiography and MRI. We have to use heart failure drugs uh, in order to treat heart failure. Uh, there have been cases that have gone all the way to cardiac transplantation and death. Mm. There are well-documented fatal cases in the peer-reviewed literature and the vaccine stakeholders have not updated the consent forms. So they are not fairly informing the parents that their, child's could, their children could die with the vaccination. So given the fact that um, some of the symptoms sometimes present themselves as something as, as innocuous as just a fever, um, would you recommend that if you've had your child vaccinated that they go out and they get an echocardiogram or some other diagnostic tool to find out, you know, make to ensure that their child does not have cardiac implications as a result of the vaccine? 
you know, that is so hard to, um, uh, to, to give guidance on. We know from the uh, registrational trial by Frank and the in ages 12 to 17, and then by Walther, age five to 11, 30 to 40% of these children have significant fever, muscle aches, uh, inanition, nausea, vomiting uh, with the vaccines. The vaccines make the children sick. About 20% have to take time off of school. The vaccine itself, by the way, is far uh, more serious as an illness than COVID-19, the respiratory illness. The kids actually get sicker with the shots than they would with the respiratory illness. Now, among the kids getting sick, it's, it's very hard to figure out who's developing myocarditis. We know before COVID-19, in a paper by Arolio and colleagues in Finland, where they had all the childhood cases captured, very good database there, that the rate of myocarditis was four cases per million per year. Four per million wow. per year. Now in a paper, yeah, yeah. And now in a paper by Scharf and colleagues from Kaiser Permanente, they've estimated uh, the peak age uh, boys, now boys are 90% of cases, is age 18 to 24. So these are consenting college age, military age kids, that the rate is 537 per million. So for now the CDC said it was rare and mild, quote unquote, but the CDC had the number at 63 per million. So the CDC was still astronomically high. I can tell you a single case is unacceptably high. We've already had American children die at the end of a COVID-19 needle. One case is too many. Uh, these clearly should not be used in children. You know, John and I, in a few weeks, are going to be attending the nation's largest homeschooling convention. John, maybe you can say more. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a, I was taken by surprise when the lady told me about it. I mean, there is an enormous groundswell of, of parenting in, in this country that has recognized that our public schools and our health agencies in, in, many, in many respects acting together over the last two years have just failed to properly educate children and, and to teach them um, civics and the, the, the things that co co cohere a society. So there's this enormous homeschooling movement and they're having a convention in Orlando, Florida. Um, I think the big culminating day is the 27th of, of, of May, Friday the 27th. And um, what, what Dr. McCullough and I found so interesting as we were learning about this is what unites all of these people in addition to being parents is, is they all have this really going, it's the spirit that goes back to the founding fathers, a, a real feeling that the essence of, of our republic is individual liberty. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that parents in the way they rear their children, it's much the same as, as the doctor patient relationship. Um, so we're going to attend this and, and, and talk about our book and talk about Dr. McCullough's Odyssey. Um, and we, we are concerned, going back to the kind of opening of this conversation, that, that public health policy is being used as a sort of Trojan horse to subvert a lot of the traditional founding father you know, values of, of our U.S. Constitution and, and, the, and the proposition of, of, of individual liberty that, 
that the, the way to control this is not through a bunch of police or stormtroopers on the street, but um, through uh, centralized uh, medical imperatives. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I, I really feel like it, we've, we've touched on this a little bit before, the spirit of totalitarianism. Um, and the other thing I would, I would add to that, you know, it was Carl Jung, this, the Swiss uh, psychiatrist Carl Jung, that I think really had some of these early insights about what's now called mass formation. He called it mass psychosis, um, basically the same. And you know, he observed in the 50s that you can, you can get a, a notion that's charged with, with a lot of negative emotion. And it doesn't really have to be a very large percentage of the population that it begins with. I mean, it may only be five, six, seven, eight, ten percent of the population will have this idea, they will passionately embrace it. And then if the circumstances are right, and Dr. McCullough outlined some of, the, some of the circumstances that could come together, it spreads like a contagion. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, suddenly people are saying something that just a few years earlier you know, would have been inconceivable. I mean, if you, right. if you mentioned it at a dinner party five years ago, people would have looked at you like you're a lunatic. And, and just the way that human perception is so conditioned by, you know, what the people around you, I mean, we are tribal primates. I mean, if you, you know, if you think about us when there were just a hundred of us in a tribe, you know, we're always looking to each other. Well, there was a noise in the woods, you know, what do you think it was? Well, I don't know. What do you think it was? Well, you know, maybe we should ask the tribal elder or the priest. And so we're always kind of getting feedback from each other in order to form a perception of reality. And, and this, this can kind of um, snowball and turn into a, a, a contagion. So I, I would like to emphasize that. And the other thing, and then I'll shut up. Um, I, I think that we humans, particularly in the modern context, we, we oftentimes go through life uh, sort of naive or lacking awareness, we have a spot. Um, I mean, when we're with our friends, when you're really loving, very tender, even very altruistic, and, and very strong predatorial instincts, um, avarice, war-making, you know, strong predatory tendencies. And, and I, I think that when we lose awareness of that, of that dark side of human nature, we, we become very naive and we become very sentimental and um, we lose sight of this dark side. And, and I, you know, it's slightly metaphysical, but I see, I see a, a sort of ascendancy of darkness in the world right now. Uh, some of these ag aggressive, malevolent qualities of human nature are, are, are in the ascendant. And, and there's a chapter in our book in which Dr. McCullough has an encounter with, with a, um, a religious, a spiritual figure, and they, they talk about this. It's a very interesting uh, encounter between a medical man and, and, a, and a someone, you know, who, who operates in the realm of religion. And um, 
so I, anyway, I'm I'm sorry I I I I'm I'm rambling. Um, no, I think it's all fascinating, and I would agree. Uh, you guys, again, I I'm so aligned with with what you're what you're saying, and I'm that's why I'm really excited about your book. And like I said, I can't wait to read it. Going back to your point about homeschool, we've actually the Unity Project has partnered with um, an organization that gives classes on how to start, a, you know, homeschooling your children, and um, a software program to connect with other parents that are that are choosing to homeschool their kids. And I think that's so vitally important. I, you know, I did a I did a speaking event recently, and there were some people at the end. We did a Q and A session, and someone raised their hand and said. You know, what do we do? What are my options? Um, you know, if, what can I do? I, I feel like I've I've written to my school board. I feel like I've gone to the principal. I feel like I've written my elected officials, and no one's listening. And I simply said, look, you actually have a very powerful tool at your disposal, and it's very simple. Pull your kids out of school, homeschool your kids. That is one of the most powerful things that you can do. I think that in the state of California, if ten percent of the kids tomorrow were pulled out of school in opposition to vaccine mandates and, and all the other things that are going on in the school system right now, you would sure see a big change um, in our society and in particular in the academics of community. So I, I agree. Laura, I've been impressed. I uh, see young people in my office and talk to parents all day long. I'm impressed with the success of children who do homeschooling and how well they do in college and how mature and how united the families are. I kind of judge the relationships when you see everyone together. And I'm so proud of the parents and proud of the, the children in, in doing that. You could almost think about if there was some type of natural disaster going on in school, uh, let's say all the schools somehow became radioactive or mm -hmm. contaminated with lead or arsenic or what have you. You know, for a public health reason, you says, I'm pulling my kids out. Until they can get the schools cleaned up, right. I'm going to have my child educated at home. It's the same thing here. Right. Until this vaccine goes away, uh, the schools, in a sense, are harmful. The, the mechanism of staying in school is taking a vaccine. The school is harmful. And, uh, you know, the same thing at the college level. Uh, you know, the college transfer is common. And college mm -hmm. transfer probably will be the mechanism that will impress various universities to potentially reconsider their vaccine mandates as uh, uh, students transferred. I had a student in my office last week. Uh, he was actually at my alma mater, Baylor, and which did not have a vaccine mandate, but instead they tried this punitive weekly testing program where he had to do weekly testing. And, and uh, I forget what the penalty was if you didn't uh, get it done, whether your internet was shot off or just something. They basically you know, talked to his parents and said, listen, we're paying top dollar for this. I'm transferring. So he transferred right. to SMU. You know, people are consumers. Parents are consumers when their children are in school, uh, whether it be at the elementary, middle, and high school and college levels. And consumers have power. And, and the consumers need to express their power. And same thing in healthcare. I have so many patients coming to me that are saying, Dr. McCullough, I am not going to go into an office where a doctor tells me to take the vaccine and thousands of Americans are dying. That's it, that's the line. And patients are leaving those doctors in droves. Right. And, and they, want, they want alternatives. I just had today in my office, an office worker of another like-minded uh, doctor at a competing hospital. She was an OB-GYN and, and, and the patient had a cardiac problem. So the only doctor I recommend is Dr. McCullough 
because he's not going to push the vaccine on you. Yeah. And, and uh, this is going to continue to grow. Uh, the other thing I've noticed, Laura, just uh, for your general uh, listeners, I've never seen so much enthusiasm for entrepreneurialism, where entrepreneurs sure. get to call their own shots. They're not under corporate rule. And uh, the independence that they have and enjoy is unparalleled at this moment. I would agree. I think that that the unique, somewhat unintended consequence of, of the pandemic and what's happening is that you're starting to see a little bit of the American spirit come back and you're starting to see communities reformed, whether it's through the homeschooling communities or for, like you were saying, people who are becoming entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs interested in serving their, their various communities. Um, so I'm, I think it's an interesting kind of unintended consequence of, of the pandemic. And I just want to thank you guys for, for the work that you're doing. I am just in awe and so grateful for everything that you're doing. It's so vitally important to the future of this country. And, and really, uh, as a parent, I will say it's so vitally important to parents to protect our children and what you're doing is helping us do that. So what I'd like to do is um, end by, by um, asking you to tell everyone where they could find out more about the book, how they can get access to it. Um, is there a website? Tell us more about that. Um, we have published the book on Amazon. Um, it, it is the absolute most efficient way of getting the book out to the broadest uh, distribution. It's worldwide. So if they will look for our book on Amazon, The Courage to Face COVID-19, there's also a link to the book on our website, um, uh, couragetofacecovid.com. Fantastic. Go ahead, Peter. Well, Laura, I was going to say, additionally, you can follow me on Twitter, P uh, underscore McCullough MD. I'm on Instagram and all the other platforms as uh, at Peter McCullough MD. And then don't forget to tune into my weekly podcast, America Out Loud Talk Radio, The McCullough Report, uh, where it is primarily medical, but it's a worldwide report. I do have a music segment and, uh, and we have, uh, John and I have featured the book already on the platform and we'll have a few more dedicated sessions on it. You know, thinking about this, I almost think the, the book ought to be required reading for high school. Uh, because, uh, you know, it really reads well. And I think high school students, I think everybody can relate to this. The lockdowns and what happened and family members getting sick and the scramble for medications. The relatability is high. Uh, we're very proud of it. I've been absolutely honored to work with a best-selling author. Uh, it's been a real thrill. I did the medical side and the, you know, the timeline side and, and John did the award-winning writing. So we hope it's a real you know, it's a real pleasure for Americans and people all over the world to read it. Fantastic. Well, I like that. Uh, I think we should start the movement. I think we should start a petition about getting this as required reading for any high school student. I'm all in support of that. And I encourage everyone to go out and get a copy of the book. And thank you again, gentlemen. You've been amazing and keep up the good work. From all of us at the Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. 
We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.